Well, we have a Bible reading just now, and it's from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and uh, from verse 18. If you're uh, looking that up in the Pew Bible, it's page 965. Now, our Bible reading from Matthew chapter 1 and from verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us. Now, if you have your Bible, please do turn it with me to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we're going to uh, go through this passage. Last, this time last year, if you've got a good memory, we preached on this passage. I preached on this passage, and we preached on Joseph. Uh, and today, as we make our way through it, we're not going to focus so much on Joseph, but we're going to focus on the two names of Jesus. We're trying to match up our, our series here with what we call our big people, with our little people in the back. And so our little people are thinking about the promised king last week and the coming king this week, and next week will be the, the worshiped king. So uh, today we're thinking about the coming king. And as we settle into this passage, the question for you all is the same as what I had for the little ones. What excites you most about Christmas? What excites you most about Christmas? For some of the men, I'm sure it's that uh, pair of socks that you get every single year, the 12 pair, whatever it is, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Some people hate those. I think they're really, really handy and helpful. I love getting new socks. Maybe uh, something about Christmas that excites you is the stuffing. I don't know if you're a stuffing fan. I'm, I think that's what makes our Christmas dinner is the stuffing. I was talking to some people this morning about cocktail sausages and who gets the most cocktail sausages in your family. Maybe that's what excites you about Christmas. Maybe it's the moment that the last of the family leaves the door and walks out on Christmas and you shut it and you can think, ah, and you can breathe. Maybe that's what excites you. Maybe it's the carol service. Maybe it's the Christmas ham. Or maybe this morning you're here and for many folks, you're dreading Christmas. So if you're excited by other things this morning, I want to show you that there is something infinitely more exciting than all the things that the world has to offer us. Or if you're dreading Christmas, I want to show you that there is something, that there is something worth getting excited about. So we're going to see three things. The first is going to be pretty short, the coming king, and then we're going to think about the saving king, 
and then we're going to look at the present king. So first of all, the coming king. Imagine you're in Belfast, and you're doing your last one of Christmas shopping, and you're maybe around Victoria Square somewhere, and you're thinking, I need to make my way over to Primark to buy the Christmas pajamas or the Christmas jumper. Are we doing that this year? Are we having our Christmas jumper competition? Yeah. Christmas morning, there you go. Okay, so you're thinking, Hill Street Christmas, com- uh, Christmas jumper competition. I need to get over to Primark to buy it. And you're about to walk across the road, and, and what comes streaming past you is, Two motorbikes, police motorbikes, they go, they go flying past. And you think, well, that's a little bit odd. And then a, a few more uh, motorbikes come past and more and more and more. And you think, okay, someone, someone really important is going to pass by. Uh, and so the, 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 sort of the, the outriders go past. And then you have a couple of big dark Range Rovers that go by. And then a, a Rolls Royce with two little royal flags fluttering. And you think, there it is. There, someone out of the royal family is here. Maybe the king is here. What, what announces the, the king's arrival or an important person's arrival? It's the outriders, isn't it? All of the police motorbikes streaming past one after the other. You're thinking, all right, I'll just, I'll just pause here for a little second and see who's coming. Well, that's a little bit like what we read here in Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 1, okay? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the book, and we thought about this last week, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the the fluttering royal standard, as it were. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what do we have as we read through last week, this list of long names in the genealogy? It's outrider after outrider after outrider, isn't it? Motorbike after motorbike, as it were. The important one's coming. The important one's coming. He's getting a little bit closer. He's coming. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. And as they string past, as we read through it last week, one after the other, the whole point being, the king is coming. That's what verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1 unlocks for us. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the royal one, is coming. The king comes. And so what do we read here in verse 18 of our passage as we think about this morning? The birth of Jesus Christ. Well, literally in the Greek, what does that read like? It says the origin of Jesus Christ was like this. This is how it starts. And you've got to get this into place. This is how Jesus Christ, the King, the supreme and ultimate King, this is how He came to earth. So verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Jesus didn't arrive like Arnold Schwarzenegger in in Terminator films in a ball of fire. He wasn't delivered by a magical stork. He didn't fall like a shooting star. He didn't come to a human and hijack their skin suit. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. He is God incarnate. That's what we've been thinking about on our Sunday evenings. Last week, God incarnate. And uh, if you're a little bit like me, I think throughout the week, you should still have your, your mouth open. The incarnation in shock. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, comes from heaven and takes our flesh. It's an incredible truth. And then tonight, Nigel will open up for us the virgin birth, the doctrine of that. So here comes Jesus. But what does Jesus come to do? 
That's what I want us to, to edge into this morning. What does Jesus come to do exactly? Does he come to overthrow the Romans? What's going on? Does he come to liberate the Hebrews? Is he coming to take over the world? And what difference does it make? If Jesus is the supreme king, if he is God's son, what difference does him coming to this earth make to my life? Well, Matthew wants to make it really clear. And that's what we're going to see. He's the saving king. That's our second point this morning. He's the coming king, then he is the saving king. Why do I have a picture of this? Well, I knew Jason, you were coming back, Jason, you'd love the airplane pictures, right? I want us to imagine this morning the saving king. What do I want us to picture? I want us to picture, and if you know the film Saving Private Ryan, and for some of you, you may not, right at the end of Saving Private Ryan, there's a scene where, where the captain of this little group of men has been sent to rescue this Private Ryan, and they're, they're set about a task of defending a bridge against the Nazi push forward. And they, they kind of have this skirmish throughout the streets of this town. All's going fairly well, but as the, as the Nazis roll in, tank after tank after tank, they push the American forces back. And their last point is the bridge. And so they all run across the bridge, and they're just about to blow the bridge. And the captain, who's Tom Hanks, he gets up and he, he goes to make his way over to the detonator, and as he goes to make his way over, he's, he's shot, and he falls down, and he gets a little bit of energy pulled together, and he pulls himself against a car, and he takes out his pistol, and there's a, a Nazi tank rolling over the bridge. And with all of the energy that he can, that he can muster, he, he starts pinging this pistol off the tank, right? And the bullets are, are just pinging off the outside of the armor. He's, he's done. It's over. It's finished. And then at the last moment, a plane comes flying over, as it does in Hollywood. A plane comes flying over and rescues the whole situation. This plane, this, and for Jason's benefit, it's a P-51. It <laughs> gives me the nod. Jason's a pilot, if you're wondering why he's all into planes. P-51, known during the war as angels on our wings. This, this bomber comes over and blows up the Nazi tank and all's well, and the story ends well. But the picture of us this morning, as we make our way into Matthew, is, is a little bit like Tom Hanks. We're, we're, we're absolutely out on our feet. We've no energy left. We're, we're sitting uh, propped up, and we're, we're pinging, oh, not even a pistol, we're pinging a, a spud gun at darkness, and at Satan. The people dwelling under darkness and death, that's the picture in Matthew. That's the picture of humanity. We're, we're done for. It's, it's all over. Darkness, darkness rules towards us. Darkness is ruling in, and there's no way to conquer this. Humanity can't fight back. Well, P-51 doesn't arrive, but instead, who arrives? It's the Son of God. The Son of God arrives to do what? What does He come to do? Well, look at it in our passage. We see it here in His name. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will do what? For he will save his people from their sins. See, have we thought about Christmas in this way? That it's, it's not just this quaint, nostalgic, sort of reminiscent, nice thing for kids. This is war. As Jesus arrives in Matthew chapter 1, he is declaring war comes to rescue us from the enemy, the high king of heaven here, to rescue his people. 
So Christmas is not nostalgic. It's not quaint. It's not just some nice thing that we do every year. This is, uh, uh, this is life-changing business that we're talking about. This is cosmic. It has cosmic importance, eternal consequences as Jesus, the saving king, comes to wage war and to win and to declare the victory and to set the captives free. And so as we read verse 21, verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1 should, should start, start to bubble up inside of us. The excitement, he shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name literally means God will rescue or God rescues. And I think we're all guilty of this, aren't we? We're all guilty of thinking of the Christmas story as the cute little story, the donkey and the bale of straw and the, the little baby and everybody dressing up in old tea towels and wrapping a band around their head. It's kind of what we think about Christmas, so it's nice. Let's be really sure what's going on in Matthew. It's the beginning of the greatest war ever known to humanity. And right from this moment, what do we see? We see that Jesus is going to have to go to the cross, don't we? How do we know that? How do we know that at his birth, it's not just all nice, and that kind of the story gets a little bit nasty as it goes towards Easter? Well, because in verse 21, it tells us he's going to save his people from their sin. And what does that mean? If, if we were reading that in its original context, the second we hear sin, we think, how are we going to be saved from sin? There's going to have to be a sacrifice. All of the Old Testament, if sin's going to be paid for, there's going to have to be a sacrifice. And what's the sacrifice going to require? It's going to require the shedding of blood. So verse 21, he will, he will be called Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. He'll have to die. And so from his birth is announced, from his very name is given, his face is set towards Calvary so that he will rescue his people from their sin. And the problem this morning is that, that we don't get excited about this. We don't, we don't see the wonder of this. It doesn't, it, we, we don't pick up the Bible and want to hold it close to ourselves this morning as we read these verses because we are dulled to the, the need that we have. We don't see the need that we have. If we, could, if we could see our sin more clearly, if we could see that this truly is our greatest need, then we would read this passage, and every time we would read verse 21 or read it, someone in the church would, would shout out, Hallelujah! You see, we get distracted. We think that our greatest need is to clear our inbox of our emails. We think it's maybe to find the, the next investment plan. Maybe we think it's about getting Christmas presents or that we need a holiday. Or our greatest need is to find the next best anti-aging cream. What do we need this morning? What do you need and what do I need more than anything else? We need to be rescued from our sins. We need someone to come in and to save us. And Christmas, Christmas is God's rescue plan. And you know, if you were to listen to your news, watch the TV, 
Tune into all of the, the various news channels. There's no breaking news about this. There's, there's no strap line coming up across the bottom of the TV that reads, impending death for every soul in the world, but one rescuer. We were bombarded, weren't we, about COVID-19 again and again and again. And there was, there was little threads of hope. Do you remember those days whenever there was rumors starting to break that, that an antidote, a, a cure had been found, some sort, of, some sort of vaccine to save us from this? And the world misses the point, don't they? What's our greatest need? Our greatest need is to, be, is to be saved from our sins. Our radio waves, our television screens are not occupied by this information. We're told about all of the symptoms of sin, aren't we? That's what occupies the news channel, all of the brokenness in the world, all of the effects of sin, but no one's tracing it back. No one's tracing us to the ultimate problem, to the very epicenter, to the engine from where all of these, these fumes flow of sin. Our greatest need today, if you can be convinced of nothing else, is to be saved from our sin. Our sin is killing us. It's taking us to a, an eternal death, an eternal punishment. Verse 21, he will save his people from their sin. From the guilt of sin. We all feel that, don't we, as humans? We know the guilt that comes whenever we break God's law. Even if we're not a Christian, we can feel that inside of us. There's a guilt. It comes to save us from it by washing us. It comes to save us from the dominion of sin, not the power that sin has upon us. It comes to save us from the very presence of sin. He's going to take us to be with himself and recreate the world. And he saves us from the consequence of sin. And what we have in Matthew 1 is the story of a king coming to rescue his people, to slay his foe, to bind up the opposition. And then this king comes and he declares victory for all in his kingdom. He comes to liberate, to give freedom to those who have known the oppressive scheme of who? Of the evil one who is a murderer and who is a liar and who is a stealer. There's, there's a little subtle thing going on in, in Matthew. <clears throat> And perhaps we haven't picked it up. What has actually been going on? There's a, there's a mirror image here from the Old Testament. And it's very subtle, but there, there's little hints of what's going on here is what's been happening in Exodus all the way back in the Old Testament. How, how do we know that? Well, the undertones of Exodus are, are sort of scattered all over Matthew. But you think about the Exodus story. Let's, let's rehash it in our minds. Do you remember Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let God's people go? And Pharaoh says, no. And as Jesus arrives into Matthew chapter 1, he's not asking Pharaoh to let his people go. He's asking sin and death and Satan. And he's not just asking, but he is going to crush the head of those who oppose God's people. And why does he do it? Why does Jesus do this for us? Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. 
God cares for us. He sees the affliction of His people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And then verse 8 of Exodus chapter 3, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus. And, and, and we have the Exodus scene, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting for the, the Exodus to be played out, not just on, on a small scale, but on a cosmic scale. God descending to earth in His Son and declaring to the powers of sin and darkness, let my people go. God's Son, Rico Tice says, born by God's action, on God's mission to rescue. And look at the little hints again of the Exodus. Look at Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bible open. Look at Matthew chapter 2, it says, in the days of Herod the king, and then in verse 3, he talks about the king again. There's irony here. It should be King Jesus has arrived, but here's King Herod, and the irony runs. But then look at the Exodus illusion again. What does Herod do? He orders all the, the male children to be killed, just like Pharaoh had ordered the killing of the baby boys. Then look at verse 4 of chapter 2. What does Herod do? He assembles all of the chief priests, all of the scribes, whenever he's confronted by God. Isn't that what Pharaoh does? He, he gets all of the wise men and all of the enchanters of the land, and he brings them to himself whenever he's confronted with God. And just before, the, the illusions are, are amazing, just before uh, Pharaoh is confronted with Moses, God's representative, in Exodus chapter 6, what is there? There's a massive genealogy. Matthew chapter 1. Here's Exodus 2.0. Here's the genealogy of the king. And Moses would come, and what would he do? He would throw down his staff before Pharaoh to prove who God was. What do we have in chapter 2 of Matthew? The wise men don't throw things down. They come and they lay things down at the feet of the king. It's the whole trajectory of Scripture, you see. Everybody waiting for the second Exodus, the supreme Exodus, the great Exodus when God would lead His people out of slavery to darkness and into the land of milk and honey. And so God's people are waiting for God's King, for the great Exodus. He is the King that we all need. He's the King that we all need. Our last point, and it's much shorter, is the present King. We have heard the first thing about Jesus' name, verse 21 that He will save His people from their sins. And we've only scratched the surface of that. But then look at verse 23. We're told another thing about His name. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know what it's like whenever you go into Tesco's? Maybe you've been charged for two liters of milk and you've only bought one, and you're outraged. You get into the car and you look at your receipt you think, that, that girl, that fella, he charged me too much for my milk. And the way you go in with your receipt, right, total injustice done on you, and you, you arrive at the customer services and you say, I, I want to see the manager. 
And the, the girl or whoever's on the desk phones up the manager and, sorry, the manager's busy. And you're fuming. That's just added fuel to the fire, right? Or you arrive, imagine this. Imagine you arrive into London and you, you think, I'm going to go to 10 Downing Street and I'm going to tell the Prime Minister exactly what I think about the Northern Ireland Protocol, if you have any thoughts on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And you think, I, I, I'll march my way up to 10 Downing Street. Well, there's about 50 police officers between you and the gate, right? There's no way you're going to make it. I'm going to summons him. Or maybe you think, I'll go to 10 Downing Street, or, or sorry, I'll go to Buckingham Palace, I'll try knocking on the door, and I'll tell King Charles just exactly what I think about the latest documentary about Harry and Meghan, right? We haven't a hope, sure. We, don't, we can hardly get a manager to respond to us in Tesco's about two liters of milk. There's no way that the Prime Minister is going to answer our call. There's no way we're going to be able to walk into, walk into Buckingham Palace to speak with the king. We couldn't get an audience with these people. We can't summon them on our power. Sure we can't. And what do we read in Matthew chapter 1? That we don't go to summons anyone, but that the high king of heaven comes here to be present with us. Isn't it incredible? We can't get an audience with anyone, hardly. I can't even get my dog to follow me whenever I shout at him to come. And yet here in Matthew 1, the king of heaven and earth comes to be with his people. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The eternal, the almighty God coming to be with us. Not to tell us off, not to rebuke us, but to come to have compassion on us. To have an offer of salvation granted us. That's what Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 is all about. The promised king arriving to save his people and to be present with them. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the prophecy that's told says, Jesus, the Son of God, will come to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And those words in Isaiah 61 are given to the prophet, but then Jesus lifts them in Luke chapter 4, and they, they, they become the words of our Savior. What does Jesus say about himself? He says, I came to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. And that means I'm not going to do it from a distance. I'm going to come right here onto this earth and I'm going to do it for you in person. The God of heaven stooping down to take our flesh, to save us, the Emmanuel, the Emmanuel principle of, of chapter 1 and of verse 23. This, this principle that has been all the way through Scripture, hasn't it? God with his people in the garden. Then sin comes, and what happens? God's still with his people. And then he's with his people in Egypt. And then he's with his people as he leads them out of Egypt through the, the pillar of fire and the cloud at night. Uh, uh, fire, during the day, uh, fire during the night and cloud during the day. Then he tabernacles God with his people in the tent. Then in the, in the temple as they reach the promised land, God with his people. That's what we thought about on Sunday night. And why? Why? Because he cares about his people. It's the very heart of our God. This is who he is. To bring good news to the poor, 
and bind up the brokenhearted. He is compassionate and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What do we know from the Exodus? Well, it's the the oppression of God's people that moves God to action as He initiates salvation. And so what we can say as we apply this today is this, that God, God is interested in us. And as we look at the world and we think, is there a God at all? We can say, yes, there is. And He has visited this earth. And if you wonder, will this ever get any better? Is there, is there better things to come? Yes, there is, because the King has come, and He has won the victory for us. Our foe lies defeated. The smoldering ruins of the strong man of this earth lie at the foot of the cross. Emmanuel, God with us. He hasn't left us to muddle through alone. He hasn't left us to our own devices He's come here to be with us. And you're maybe saying to me, John, I've made a mess this morning. I've made a mess. There's no way God, I don't feel God close to me. I know that I'm a Christian, but I feel very, very distant from him. That's a lie. A lie from Satan. We know that the Holy Spirit, doesn't Jesus come and he leaves the Spirit on earth? And the Spirit indwells every believer, given to believers irrevocably. You cannot lose him. He's yours. God is in our room here this morning. Through each regenerate person, the Holy Spirit dwelling with us, God with us to do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor. And to do what amongst us this morning? To bind up our broken hearts and to fix our eyes on His coming again. He's here. And he's with us. Our time's gone. Is Christmas worth getting excited about? Yes. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Isn't it? Jesus Christ, Son of God, to save his people from their sins, Emmanuel, God with us. And you know what? See if you've missed it. Here's, here's a class detail. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4, we don't get this. I, I learned this last week at the castle. I thought it was incredible. Andrew Satt shared it with us. Look at chapter 3 of Matthew. And we hear about John the Baptist. We're talking about outriders. We started off talking about police outriders proclaiming the one who is to come. Look at chapter 3 and verse 4. Now John, John the Baptist, everybody thinks he's a strange character. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. The whole point of that is, is this. If, and I'm going to use Nigel for this. If Nigel arrived in the church this morning and you arrived with a cape on you, a red cape and a, a sort of a blue skin suit and a big S in the middle of it, he would be Superman, wouldn't he? Everybody would know. And that, what's Nigel doing dressed up as Superman? That's what this is in the context of, of this day, whenever this was written. Everybody's thinking, it's not Superman, but John comes and he's dressed up like Elijah. Why on earth is John, why has he gone down into the local shop in Bethlehem or wherever he is? Why has why he, he taken off the real, the Elijah costume? Do you want to know why he's taken it? Flip back just two pages in your Bible to the end of Malachi. And I want, I'm doing this so that we can all see him. I don't want anybody to miss who Jesus is this morning. Look at verse 5 of Malachi. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. We can't miss him. Here he is, the high king of heaven. And he comes to save. And he comes to be with his people. I trust, I trust that you will be excited about this. And that if you don't know him, that you'll see him for the first time today. And that you'll trust him as your Lord and as your Savior.